Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by OR Books, publisher of Exile, Rejecting America and Finding the World, the new book by Belen Fernandez. When Fernandez hit 21, she left the United States and has not looked back since. In her new book, she reflects on what it means to be an American in a largely American-made mess of a world. Exile has just hit stores and is generating enthusiastic advanced reviews. Greg Grandin, author of Fordlandia, calls it, quote, a must-read how-to guide for surviving on the periphery. And journalist Liza Featherstone calls Bellin's writing, quote, brilliant, hilarious, compassionate, and unflinching. Exile, Rejecting America and Finding the World by Belen Fernandez, available now from O.R. Books. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hi there, I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. Welcome to the program. It's good to be with you. I'm here in Los Angeles and I have Kimberly King Parsons as my guest on today's episode. She has a new story collection out from Vintage. It is called Blacklight. And it is superb. I'm excited to catch Kimberly at this moment in her career because I think there are big things ahead for her. Um, she's got this collection out. She's got a novel in the works that sounds interesting. Had a wonderful time meeting her and talking with her. And you're going to hear that conversation momentarily. If you would like to support this show, you can uh, do that in a couple of ways. You can write a review over at iTunes. That helps. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Tip your server. Uh, I want to give an update on transcripts. As many of you out there know, I did a fundraiser earlier this year to try to help uh, raise some money to cover uh, or offset the cost of transcribing the episodes of this show. It's a big undertaking. There are nearly 600 episodes to transcribe, and they are long-form interviews. So if you're familiar at all with uh, transcription, it's costly. To transcribe, a, you know, it's like a dollar a minute, typically, somewhere in there, 75 cents, a dollar a minute. So you do a 90-minute uh, a interview, 
and you can start to see how it can add up quickly. So a couple things. First of all, many of you out there have volunteered to transcribe an episode or two or three, and I want to say yet another thank you to everybody who has done that. I've received several dozen transcripts over the past you know, couple of months since the fundraiser wrapped up. And as of yet, only a couple of those transcripts are on the show's official website at otherppl.com. The reason for that is twofold. First of all, I've just been super busy. Kids off of school, summertime, very busy and demanding day job, trying to get this show done, interviewing people. It's just, you know, there are only so many hours in the day. So uh, that's one part of it. The second part of it is that I realized that once I get the transcripts from volunteers and I'm going to put them up on the site, I still have to do a pretty thorough edit, like a copy edit. I have to make sure the formatting is right. I'm pretty finicky about that stuff. I want to make sure that the transcripts uh, don't have typos or, you know, don't misspell the guest's name or that sort of thing. And that takes time because you're dealing with a 30-page document. So you can see how the workload stacks up on me um, to try to get it done. And I will get it done somehow, some way. I'm just asking you guys to bear with me. And uh, I want you to know, too, that I have not spent any of the money that I raised. Because, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out what the best strategy will be to make the most of that money to get the most good transcripts out of it. And I'm debating whether or not to use an AI transcription service, which is significantly cheaper, and then hire somebody to clean those transcripts up, which might be more cost-effective. Do I hire a transcription service overseas where I might get a better deal on the exchange rate? And so on and so forth. So, you know, between volunteers and the, the fundraiser, I'll probably get, you know, hopefully over 100 episodes transcribed. That's still just like a fifth of the way. So if you're out there listening and this is the first you've ever heard of it and you have some extra time or just some goodwill and you want to transcribe an episode or more, you can hit me up at letters at otherppl.com. And my thanks again to everybody, uh, both for your uh, generous uh, help in making this happen one way or the other. And also for your patience as I, you know, try to get my uh, act together to get this all to fruition. A listener named Sam writes, Hey Brad, I listened to episode 594 with Shane Jones. That was a good episode. However, there was something that Shane said that I found deeply unsettling. What am I referring to? The fact that Shane Jones goes to bed at 8 p.m. What the fuck? I don't know if I'm envious of him or straight up feel bad for him. How does he do it? Why does he do it? Forget about his obsession with suits and ties for a minute. This 8 p.m. bedtime is the real Patrick Bateman shit. Truly fucked. Seems like a good guy, though. Love the podcast. Sam. So, uh, thank you, Sam, for your letter. I appreciate it. Sam listens, I think, to most every episode, or he seems to. He's written to me before. Uh, I enjoyed talking with Shane Jones. It's one of our most popular recent episodes. He, of course, is the author of Vincent and Alice and Alice, the novel out from Tyrant Books. It was the official August pick of the TNB Book Club. And rather than respond with, uh, you know, I don't know what I would say to this personally, I, I decided to reach out to Shane for comment. And uh, I did reach him just a moment ago. And he wrote back to me, quote, I'm flattered by the Patrick Bateman comparison and am now considering going to bed at 730. 
end quote. If you would like to write to me, once again, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Kimberly King Parsons. Her story collection, Blacklight, is available now from Vintage and has been earning rave reviews. There's a lot of buzz. People know a good thing when they find it. And I'm excited to share this conversation with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Kimberly King Parsons. I worked on them from, you know, some of them go back to 2005. So I have worked on them for a really long time. And there's nothing in there that I feel ashamed of or that felt rushed. It felt done. So that was that was good. And so I, I mean, I didn't feel like these are great, but I did feel like this is the best that I can do. And so that was, it's been nice to get sort of, and also the people who've been reviewing them have been sort of getting what I'm doing, which you never know if it's going to land right with people, but it has been so far. So yeah, like that's an interesting question. Cause like, I think there is good art that gets reviewed poorly. Like the people who are reviewing it, like misapprehend it. Yeah. But then there's also a part of me that's like, maybe if the art is rendered properly and is crafted properly, then it should land in the way that your stories are landing. But I guess there's no rule. No. Or, you know, you could have a positive review that still doesn't get what you were trying to do. You know, even if someone likes it or they say this is great, but then they, they just are sort of missing what you felt like was the bigger point. I can imagine that might be that happens sometimes on Goodreads or something. You know, you see a review from someone and it's positive, but then you're like, oh, but I don't think they really they're missing something from it, or whatever, or it didn't land for them in the way that I had hoped that it would. Okay. So wh- that brings the, you know, brings up the question, what are you trying to do and how are you hoping it lands? I think I'm trying to write despicable characters in a way that's relatable to people or that causes people to feel empathy for them and um, not to shy away from the sort of darker parts of, you know, experience, but um, yeah. And also to capture Texas, but in the complexity of Texas, which is sort of, um, you know, Texas means different things to different people because it's such a huge state and there's all these different parts of it. But um, I've lived in a lot of different parts of Texas and to sort of capture what it felt like to grow up strange in a strange landscape and um, to kind of get that regional feel, but then also to have it feel universal. Um, So, yeah. Okay. So I want to ask a a related question about the totality of the collection. Sure. 
because a lot of, I mean, there are um, short story collections that interlock in a very explicit, obvious way with right. like re recurring characters sure. and storylines. And it almost feels like a novel, but it's this, you know, kind of like Winesburg, Ohio type thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as a, as a general rule, I guess a good story collection feels unified somehow, even if there is not that, uh, through line right. or those recurring characters. Do you feel like you were going for that with this? And do you feel like you got it to a point where you, maybe you had stories that didn't make the cut yeah, because they didn't necessarily fit into what you were going for. And did you assemble this collection and sequence the stories in a way that felt to you like uh, a big mosaic? I think I wasn't planning for this to be a collection. I was just learning how to write. And I, so I started in 2005 at, when I was doing an MFA and there was always this idea that you have to have a novel as your first book, you know, that you need to be working towards the novel. And so I had a, another bigger, a big project that ended up being kind of a disaster. And I was writing these stories that was, that were the things that really made me excited. But I was sort of thinking this is just to practice or this is like to hone craft. And I wasn't thinking of them as um, a collection. I was thinking of them as just standalone pieces. But what started to happen was that my obsessions and preoccupations kept coming up in the same way. And so they do feel in a lot of ways of a piece. But there were a few that didn't make the cut um, for whatever reason. One of them was sort of inextricably linked to California. And so that was like out regionally. Um, and then also there was one that was a little too mean spirited, maybe something about it was just off. The voice was off a little bit too confrontational. And so those got thrown out and then the rest of it sort of naturally just the themes matched up a little bit, um, not intentionally, but when I sort of spread them all out, you know, in 2017 or whenever this was at the end and sort of looked at all this dozen stories, they all had a lot of similar, they're touched on similar themes. So what are your preoccupations? Can you, can you diagnose yourself? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's the, there's the fun way to say it, which is like blood and spiders and, you know, uh, gross hotel rooms or, <laughs> you know, um, illicit acts between people. Um, you know, there's certain, there's certain things like that, but then I think it's mainly about, getting to that part of finding the flaws in people and trying to show them in a way that allows for moments of empathy instead of like condemning someone. Why, like, why are you so fixated on that? Is it because you, you find yourself judgmental in a way that you would like to rectify or are you like a super empath and you're trying to maybe help the reader develop greater empathy, all of the above? I think it's growing up in a place where I felt uh, outside. And I felt, um, I mean, I, my parents, I love my parents. My parents loved me. I felt loved in my home, but I felt, um, a sense of like judgment from the outside, or I felt uncomfortable growing up where I grew up. I wanted to get out of there. Where did you grow up? So I was in Lubbock at first. I was born in Lubbock and lived in Lubbock for a while. And then we ended up, um, like went to high school in Dallas, a uh, Dallas suburb. Um, and my grandparents are from this little tiny town called there's both from Kitty Quay and Turkey, these two little West Texas towns. And I spent a lot of time out there with them also. And all of our extended family lives out in those little towns still. Um, but so I think what it is, is those, my family, we have radically different, um, political views, social views. And, but I like within your immediate family, my parents are a little bit, 
we didn't talk about a lot of that stuff, but my, my extended family, for sure, like my grandparents, my cousins, aunts, uncles, radically different approaches to the world, but they're still really wonderful people. I'm, I'm with you. Cause you know? I, my, my folks are from Louisiana. Uh, I did not grow up in the South, but I have that, you know, milieu Yeah, and, uh, it's complicated because I'm like to the left of Bernie Sanders. Right. And, uh, and I'm not really, but you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm like a hippie yeah. or at least I, I used to look like one and my politics are left. And yet I have like all these Trump voting relatives, uh, which is abhorrent to me yeah. and makes no sense. And yet I love them. Right. Exactly. Like, how do you, I, I don't know how to reconcile it all at this point. It's gotten so confusing and so painful to even contemplate. Like I, I I've never had a conversation about it with any of them. Um, my parents did not vote for Trump, but have, you know, a more conservative bent. Um, but it's just like, it's trying to parse all of that. Like, I feel like in the past, maybe everybody just had their own little opinions, but now I feel like the consequences are so, uh, significant that you almost have to deal with it. Yeah. And I, I think that that's definitely what I'm, you know, my, I don't, I don't, I didn't want to know who my mom voted for because I felt just don't tell me, <laughs> just don't tell me. Cause I, you know, I like to think, but also my, my stepdad is such a great guy. He's just the best. And he is so good with my kids and I adore him. And yet I know that there's a limit to what we can discuss and it's fine. And that's also part of it. I think it's how do you, how do you sort of deal with that? How do you process having people in your life who you love, who are radically different? And not to say that when I talk about despicable characters in this fiction, I'm not talking about they're not the despicable characters, but just people who are so radically different from you. How can you sort of bridge that gap between what you believe and what they believe? And is it about not addressing certain things? Or is it about just realizing that we're all just trying to get through this world the best way that we can and that everyone's really giving, I believe that everyone's really just doing their best, even when sometimes I feel like they're wrongheaded about it. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I agree. I think the, where I start to struggle is when I'm like, well, wait a minute, like, where's the line? Uh, like it's one thing if like, oh, you know, you have a different view on women's reproductive rights than right. I do. Um, or you have a different view on you know, any number of issues, the taxes. Right. But when they start like, like ripping babies out of Absolutely. mother's arms yeah. and they start to ban Muslims from even like entering the country and, you know, um, like white supremacists are, are lauded as fine people. It's like, I have to draw a line. Absolutely. And so that's where it gets complicated because yeah. it's like, Hey, you know, you're either ignoring this or you're and, and like ignorant of it somehow. Or you're on board with it. And if you're on board with it, either one is, to me, indefensible. Right. And just listening to it, um, I think what it is is finding the moments where also, obviously, in like a social situation or like in my real life situation, I would be, if something comes up, I'm going to talk about it or I'm going to share. I don't just sit there quietly at the table anymore. I used to, you know, when I was a kid because I just felt unsure of how I could talk. And also I felt like such an outlier, it, even in my school and with my friend, my friend groups, like I just felt very much outside of things, even from a very young age. Why? And I, Why? I don't know. I mean, I felt, I felt I wanted to get out of there and I, but I didn't know anywhere else. So there, it doesn't make sense. Like, I mean, I obviously saw the world through television and things like that, but I had this feeling like there's gotta be something else. And even as and I was a little kid, I felt like that. Um, and I read a lot. And I think maybe I, I had some sense of other 
like inhabiting other heads or being in other people's perspectives. But then also, um, I mean, religion is a huge thing where I'm from and my extended family are Southern Baptist and my parents weren't, we never went to church. Um, really? Yeah. And in actually Texas. in Texas, and there wasn't even a Bible in our house, which I'm just learning how strange that is. That's a pretty unusual thing. No wonder you're fascinated with weird hotel rooms because there's always a Bible right? there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Lubbock, just so people get a sense, because that's like the the foundation, right? That's where you started. Yeah. Lubbock is like Friday Night Lights. Yeah. West Texas, remote, sort of deserty kind. Yeah, of. like sandstorms, and it's just flat, and yeah, nothing. And very religious. Very religious, and very judgmental, and maybe that's part of it too: is feeling judged, um, and maybe even feeling like people would, you know, you talk about your belief people talk about their beliefs a lot. Like it seeps into school and there's like, I mean, there's a story in the book about fellowship of Christian athletes, like this idea that it's sort of all consuming in some of these towns. And I, oh, I never had that stuff. Like that was never a part of my life. And so it felt on the outside of this kind of club of like religious stuff. Why were your parents not into it? I, you know, I should ask them that. I, I think it's because they must've been rebelling in some way against it. Um, and I, you know, they, my parents don't necessarily talk to me about their own beliefs. They're really just open-minded though, and very non-judgmental as people, but they were also very preoccupied with their own sort of financial, like they were trying to move on up and my mom was selling real estate and they wanted to get out of that town too. They wanted to get out of Turkey and Kitty Quay. Then it was like, okay, now we're in Lubbock and then we were in Garland and then we were in this Dallas suburb. So I think they were sort of ambitious in a way that some of their family members weren't. And so they were focused on their livelihood a, a lot prosperity more. gospel yeah i mean and it, and it kind of in a way it's really great because i um i saw them you know i grew up an only child i ended up having a bunch of step siblings later but at the time they were sort of like find something to do like read a book go for a walk and it was actually really great like i just had a lot of alone time but they never pushed anything on me and my mom always said if you can read it you can read it like I was reading really trashy romance novels at a really young age. I was reading horror, like all kinds of stuff. And they didn't really modify, like they weren't, they weren't looking at anything and seeing what I was reading. They didn't care. I think that's good. Yeah, I did too. And I mean, movies if, kid, too. If, the, if your kid has their head screwed on relatively straight, yeah, you they, know, and you got to read it on a case by case basis, but I don't, I don't like monitoring all that. No, I resented the shit out of that when I was a kid. I feel like, you know, it, you, you kids are so good at detecting that, that they're being censored and then they just want to know what it is. So right. I feel like they were just, they didn't care. And there was this used bookstore by our house where you could buy like five romance novels for a dollar. And I would just pick the trashiest, like the worst covers or like the things that I thought. And you, you know, those books are really formulaic. So you just turned all the bad stuff right away. But it was sort of finding myself um, with a lot of free time because my parents were like, find a project, find an activity, which I actually, you know, I have kids and everything is so structured. And I, feel like that was actually really great to just have a lot of time well but it was easier and like kids could just go outside and play and yeah. come home and then you know at night like i can't even th like why has that become unthinkable why has our society become like a more paranoid and be more dangerous like i'm trying to put my finger on what the fuck happened but i know we used to just be able to go outside and play yeah i mean it, it's both the fear of whatever scary unknown but then also the fear of just getting reported like for leaving your kid in the car while you go run and buy headphones like i've, I've, I've heard the story about a woman who went to buy headphones at a at like a sound warehouse to go on a plane trip and she left her daughter in the car for five minutes where she could see her and someone like a good samaritan came and knocked on the window and was like oh where's 
here's your, you know, I'm going to call the police. Like just that, like that's scary too. Like you feel like you're going to be reported just for, I, when I was a kid, you laid on the back seat while your mom went grocery shopping and you didn't get out of the car ever, Right. you know, or right. you just did whatever. I don't know. Yeah. It's all very structured. So I can see, you know, staying in Lubbock for a moment, I can see how somebody who is raised by parents who are not participating in the church yeah. could be living in a place like Lubbock where there is a pretty strong uniformity. It's, it's, you know, we say it's religious, but it's Christian. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I guess, Southern Baptist it's is mostly, yeah. Predominates. And that's a hardcore, yeah. like sect. Yeah. And so it's also, in addition to being, um, religious and ideological and all the rest, you know, you have that whole part of it, but you also have the social part of it. Like, no wonder you felt outside. Like if you're not participating in that religious, uh, religious dogma, then you're also not participating in that sort of insular social experience, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, and I felt like, you know, I remember a friend of mine who joined, um, she started playing basketball. This is, you know, there's a story kind of about this. She started playing basketball and all of a sudden she got really religious and she had been raised by a single mom who wasn't involved in the church either. And she was like this one person who I felt like, oh, we, we have this in common or this sort of, um, and then she sort of like went in and went full on into the whole thing and got really super. And it was just interesting to me also how I could talk to people and we would be on the same page with so many things. And then at a certain point it would sort of diverge and I would realize, Oh, I just don't, I just don't believe in this stuff in the same way that you do. And it's not a part of, it's just not a part of who I am. Um, so yeah, that's probably why I felt like, Oh, I got to go. Yeah. I was watching this documentary on Netflix, like a, a couple nights ago and it's called the family. Have you heard about this? I haven't. It's like about this, like very influential, um, super Christian, like sort of shadow organization in Washington uh -huh. that has all this influence over politicians uh -huh. and not just in the United States, but around the world. And it's like, it's, I don't, I didn't love the documentary cause it's like really heavy on, um, reenactments. I don't right. like documentaries. With yeah, reenactments. Me either. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it, I was just watching it and I'm just like going, Oh my God. Like these people are like talking about like my relationship with Christ and like they, like in a way that's like, well, I know him right. and he's the Lord. And, um, I, I like to be open-minded and tolerant and I don't want to be a dick Yeah, and like sure of my own thinking. I sort of recoil when I feel that in myself, but I felt that in myself. I was like, what are these people talking? I feel like an alien. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, this is creeping me out and I'm tweeting about it. And then I sort of slept on it and I woke up and I was like, I'm deleting these tweets. Like, why am I doing this? Why am I calling all my like sort of, uh, like I'm snickering about these people and being sort of like openly publicly judgmental. Right. Right. I don't know. But it like, at the same time, I'm like, this doesn't seem healthy to me. It's interesting because I have, you know, I, and I, I have a lot of family members, even my some of my new step siblings who are, you know, Christian in a different way, not Southern Baptist, but and they, it's like their faith is important to them, and I would never mock their faith, and they're also the great, they're great people, and that's the thing though. I think it's just that feeling of, it's where like judgment takes over, and and then you know. I feel like if you're really adhering to like Christian values, like as they are actually stated, it's, it's totally fine. My, my viewpoint has always been don't know, don't care. Like I don't need answers about any of it and, and like be a good person. Cause you're a good person, you know? Um, it's never occurred to me to have like 
a set of guidelines in that way. But also my, some of my step siblings are like, I would never want to mock them or their beliefs. And I know that they, they truly believe it. And so great. Like that's totally fine. Like whatever gets you through life. Exactly. As long as you're not like, the problem is that like, then, then it becomes like a situation where people are trying to legislate their particular viewpoint exactly, and their morality on other people. And then there is this weird judgment like I have relatives who I'm sure like they love me, but they think I'm going to burn in hell oh, for yeah. eternity. I get that too. That's a weird dynamic. Oh, for sure. <laughs> it's like, how do you, okay, well, happy Thanksgiving. They're you know, like, like, we love you so much and we're so sorry you're going to burn for all of eternity. Yeah, and right. you're just like, well, I'm sorry that you believe that. I don't know. Yeah. But I think the people who know me and I feel really loved by my family, even the ones who I think are like, oh, you know, she's the weird one. Because I definitely have that reputation in the family. I mean, I think my parents and I all do, you know, um, being sort of different or outside, but, um, but they're still so nice when they say that they are like, you know, they're trying to say, bless your heart. Oh yeah. Bless your heart. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So Lubbock uh, till what age? So I left, uh, fairly young, actually, I moved to the to the Dallas suburbs, um, and when I was like six years old, okay. so like fairly, what, but what does Dallas suburbs mean? Plano, which is this, it's basically like any other suburb anywhere else. Um, like McMansions and oh, yeah. that sort of thing. Yep. Strip malls, strip malls, um, like good schools, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, yeah, there's lots of like tons of teenagers there. And at the time that it was known for like drug problems and suicides, but also being like a highly rated school. It's like there's some money, a little bit of money there. Um, and that's where I mostly spent my time, except for we would always go in the summers to out to West Texas. to, like to For the summer? Yeah, for most of the summer to see because all of the family is out there. So there's, you know, grandparents a million cousins and my dad's one of 11 kids and my mom's one of uh she had three sisters and two brothers so like just a lot of that sounds fun actually as a kid yeah it's fun well i mean and my cousins were cool because i wouldn't see them all year and then i would go and we would just pick up where we left off and you're just like you're so bored out there you're like catching horny toads and put them in a bucket and like I don't know. There's just nothing to do walking around, like trying to see if you could break into like old, there's like an old school building, like just hanging out and no one's monitoring. you. And what town is this? This is in Turkey, um, Turkey, Texas. And, uh, and then also Kitty Quay, which is spelled with a Q. And these are near Lubbock. Same sort of like, same sort of geography same or geology or yeah, whatever. Yeah, same, but like, it's still probably like two hours. For, it's all just so spread out. So I feel like you would fly into Lubbock or Amarillo and you're still going to be driving for a while. Texas is huge. It's so big. But it's pretty. You know, it is. And, and there's so like, actually where Kitty Quay and Turkey are, there's the Caprock Canyons. It's, it's much more interesting than Lubbock actually geographically, but yeah. Wait, but wait, is, uh, did you ever see the movie Boyhood? No. The Richard Linklater. I have. I need to. He I, goes on a mushroom trip at the end of that movie in this like mountainy, canyony area of Texas, and I was like, "Where is that?" It That's might be Paladura. Yeah, it could be. Um, I, where, where do young kids go eat mushrooms in Texas? All over. <laughs> all over. All over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's there anywhere where there's cow shit. So they'll, they'll do it. So all over. So yeah. all over. Yeah. There's lots uh, of mushrooms lots in of Texas. Lots of mushrooms. Yeah. Um, and we'll get to that. Yeah. Because you're concerned with psychedelics. I am in your work. Yeah. Um, but uh, so you get to Dallas and is there a big adjustment there? Do you feel more at home? Is there a little bit more of a cosmopolitan feel that like, I mean, more of like a diversity of people so that you might be able to find some people that 
um, are on your level? Yeah, I think my mom would call, my, my parents were both like, oh, there's a lot of Yankees here. You know, All that, And my mom was selling houses to people. Um, there was like a flood of people coming from like the Northeast to this area just for, I guess there's like JCPenney and um, what is it? Frito-Lay, like a couple of big hubs were there. So they were bringing a lot of people. Um, and so, yeah, there was, there's definitely like different accents, different people speaking different languages, like a little slightly more um, interesting. And at that time, I remember making a real concerted effort to hide my accent, which was really thick um, from being just, and my parents, like I could just hear it in a way that before I couldn't, I never noticed it. You don't really, you scrubbed it out. You don't I really did. have. I know. And I kind of miss it. You know, I don't know. When Do you I ever meet, get drunk and it comes back? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like when you're back there? Yeah, when I get both, if when I'm driving home, when I'm we're like in the car, getting close to those places, my like my mom's like, oh, I can hear it; it's coming back, <laughs> it's coming and back. she still has it, and I love it on her. And we have this uh, really similar voices, but um, and when I get drunk, sometimes you can hear it. Like when I get drunk, I do it. I'm right? not even from there. Maybe everyone does. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, hey, this is fun. <laughs> Uh, wow. So you're in Dallas and then uh, it sounds like you have a stepdad. So your parents split up. They split up. And when I was, you know, basically almost grown up, which is good. Um, and they both immediately married other people and they have each had three step kids. And so I had six step siblings. So they each way they, they remarried and each had three kids. Well, they, they got, they inherited their kid, the kids of their partners. So oh, then I got, oh, okay. yeah, six step siblings. Um, who were wonderful and they're all really great. And, um, I think it was a weird, I always, when I was a kid, I would want, you know, Oh, I wish I had siblings, but then I don't think I really did. I think I was pretty happy, but then it was nice to sort of have them, but not have to live with them, you know, right. cause I was already out of the Best house. Of both worlds. Right. And, and it's nice to, um, yeah, I, like I had three brothers, three sisters. It's cool. So, and then you leave, you go to high school in Dallas. Yeah, high school and college. Where'd you go to high school? Like just like the Plano High? Plano, Plano Senior High. Okay. Yeah. So that's like, there's like Plano East. I think now there's three, but Plano East and Plano Senior High. And it's like a big, like big football, all that stuff. Did you do that stuff? No. You weren't into it. I wasn't into it. I had like one, I had like three friends and we hung out together exclusively. And you were like, the outsider. Yeah. You didn't give a shit about football. I did not. That's like, I still don't. That's worse than not being into religion. I know. They would think that. And I mean, I try, like, yeah, I, I, I tried to, like, not with sports. I knew I wasn't into sports, but I tried to, you know, like, watch sports for boys sometimes. Like, I'd be like, oh, I'm into the Cowboys. I was never into it. It's just not my thing. <laughs> I can't fake this. No, it's too hard. Yeah, it's a weird, uh, it's a weird thing. I think it's, it's, it's harder for me as a guy just because it's like the lingua franca of all the guys in my family. Yeah. Like you talk about like not having similar political uh, persuasions and you know, you only see people every once in a while, especially as you get older. Right. But if you have that to talk about and you have like a fluency in it, it's like common ground and yeah. like a comfortable place to be. And if I let go of it, I'm like, what the fuck are we going to talk about? Exactly. No, it's true. <laughs> Um, so you get through high school, like, were you unhappy? Like, were you kind of like a mopey, like goth? Yes. Was yeah. that you? Well, I was unhappy. I had like, I had this feeling like I shouldn't be there, but I didn't have any alternatives. I didn't have anywhere else to go. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I had been somewhere else and had been like, I just got to get back to, you know, I, I just had this feeling like this sucks. I want to get out of here. Um, 
but then also, you know, my parents, I didn't want to disrespect the fact that they had worked really hard to get us to this other place. And so they're like, you're in this great, we have this house and you're in this suburb and you're going to a good school, a blue ribbon school. And um, so I had to be grateful, you know, but at the same time. Were you a good student? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was really lazy, but I, I did all right. I mean, I was in AP classes, but I would sort of, I didn't really care about much of it. And I did, I did fine. I was, I did fine. But um, I, when I got to college, so then I went to this college, like U- University of Texas at Dallas, which was literally two miles from my house. So again, I'm not getting out, like, even though I wanted to get out, but my parents were not, they were just, they were like, do whatever, but they didn't want me to leave. Or they're like, we're not going to like pay for you to leave to go somewhere else. You need to stay nearby. And so I st- Stayed and also you're their only child. Yeah, exactly. And I feel some obligation. I, I think the step siblings helped me though in a lot of ways because now they have these other people that they can sort of you know. Um, but yeah, so I went to this the University of Texas at Dallas for an undergraduate degree and I studied English there and I was a great student there. Um, and I suddenly all all the stuff that I felt like didn't matter like standardized tests or whatever was out the window and you could just write papers and suddenly I was like a really good student. And I was like, this is something I can do. And so then I did this program called Fast Track, where your last year of undergrad is is a your first year of your master's degree. So then I ended up getting a master's there too, um, like in a pretty short amount of time. And I was a teaching assistant and I was teaching and loved it and studying Faulkner. And I just like, I felt like the world opened up in a way that it hadn't, even though I'd been reading all the time, I wasn't reading the right stuff. I was just sort of reading, reading romance novels from the used bookstore. Exactly. Like just whatever. <laughs> and I, suddenly I sort of got a little bit more discerning in my tastes and figured out what I was trying to do. Did you have an influential teacher who was like pointing you in the right direction? Yeah. A hundred percent. There was a uh, Dr. Robert Nelson was a freshman English class. He had studied with Gordon Lish years before. And he was like, we read Amy Hempel, Dennis Johnson, Isaac Babel, like all these people um, who, you know, Raymond Carver even, but just short stories, a lot of short stories. And I was just, it blew my mind. Like, cause I had never, I had never really spent a lot of time with short stories and suddenly they were all coming from like the same sort of time. Well, not all of them, but uh, like the Hempel, you know, um, was coming, they were coming from the same time period where I felt like, okay, I can connect with this in a way that I hadn't connected with anything else before. Um, and yeah, it was really great. You know, it's funny. I've, I think my wife was kind of like that growing up where she grew up, where she just had this feeling of like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. And I've had that conversation a few times in here with people who like, they can't put a finger on it. Yeah. It's just like born and like, you know, they look around when they're like five years old and they're like, what the fuck is going on? I got to get out of here. Yeah. Like, I wonder what that is. I don't know. And it doesn't make sense because, you know, you don't know anywhere else. It would be one thing if, yeah, you had moved from somewhere, but you're like, no, I just had this feeling like there's got to be something else. Did you travel as a kid? No. I mean, we went to, it's so, so typical. We would go to Cancun like for vacation and that's exactly like, to the same all-inclusive place where you go see like a half a square mile of a place. You fly in, you sit on the beach and then you sit for three days and you fly back to Dallas. Like, like that was sun, it. You're like sunburned and yeah. that's it. And there's no really exploration of anything. Yeah, I think we saw like the pyramids at Chichen Itza once, but like the, I don't have a lot of memory. We didn't travel beyond that really. I've been having fantasies of being like, you know what? I'm going to take my kids out of school in a few years and just do a year. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to do it. It would be amazing. Just travel. Like schools, like they'll get more out of that than they would ever get totally. from these fucking schools. Totally. Yeah. No, I would love to do that with my kids too. I feel like it's 
but also that's part of it. My parents, they were like, you work so that you can have a vacation so that you can go to Cancun for a week and sit on the beach and then you go back to work. Like, they just didn't think, they weren't trying to go to Europe. They weren't trying to do any of these, like, bigger travels. And so it wasn't as important to them. Whereas I think for me, it's important that my kids sort of see all of this stuff. Yeah. I feel like you just, I just feel like from an educational standpoint, it's just extremely powerful. I look back on my youth or young adult years and travel experiences I had are way more vivid and, um, more cherished than anything I ever learned in a classroom. Because it pulls you out of the moment. I mean, a lot of those memories that stick with you forever are memories of, you know, because you're not in your everyday routine. And so I think that that stuff really has a huge impact on kids and also just how to be in the world how to be in an airport, how to be in a restaurant in a place where you don't speak the language, like all of that stuff goes in there, I think, in a way that's really positive that you can't recreate in a school or in any other environment. Well, so what's interesting uh, to me about you is that you had this sort of sense of alienation from a young age that carried through, um, but you seem like well-adjusted. It doesn't, you don't strike me as somebody who like, you know, took that feeling of alienation and then rebelled in some huge way. Am I missing it? Did you have like this big like no. backlash? No, I mean, I, I had like experimentation years, um, but I've always felt really grounded. My parents are really great and they really love me and I would never want to fuck myself up in a way that would hurt them, if that makes any sense. And I have a huge sense of like, I will ruin their lives if I, you know, so I, I think there's a dutiful daughter thing that's still there. And even when I was growing up feeling on the outside of things, I wasn't loud about it as a kid. I would sort of sit there quietly and be like, you know, I can't believe that they just said that, like whatever, you know, but, um, so I didn't have such a huge bad, I've always been pretty good at like moderating myself, like sort of dipping into things and dipping back out. So I haven't had not an addictive personality or anything like that, which is great. You know, because me too, I, <laughs> me too. I'm like, I'm like, I'm relatively, you know, scot free on that front. Which is, you know, and I, I was saying something the other day in an interview, and then I was like, I shouldn't say that. I said like, people forget that drugs are fun, and then I was like, that's maybe the wrong message. But they do forget that drugs are fun, and I know that drugs wreck lives, of course, and that's the narrative that we're all really familiar with. But plenty of people go into things, try things for a while, and come back out, and are like, not for me, or you know, or you you can sort of. You know, there's a, in a story where, uh, the last story in my collection, she's like, oh, you can slip out of your life and go do this thing in a hotel room and you can go back to your life afterwards. And I think some people truly can do that. And of course, plenty of people can't. And we're much more familiar with that line of thinking. I, but I don't, I think that, I think the, the narrative of destruction is actually the minority, um, it is. situation. I think the majority of people who do drugs, it's like, you know, a phase or a party yeah. or, you know, they go to Burning Man and freak out and then exactly. they come home. <laughs> or if you really took a poll or there's plenty of people who wouldn't talk about it, you know, who wouldn't mention it. But like, I mean, both of my parents were like at a certain point, they're like, we were in the 80s. Like, yeah, we know about some of this stuff. Like once we were like adults talking about stuff. Your mom was a realtor in Dallas in the 80s. Right. Come on. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> that was a swinging scene. Um so well, let's talk about uh, the new novel that you're working on, yeah. just because like the, the, the elevator pitch is very much up my alley. All oh, right. Like re- refresh my memory. It's like LSD. Texas, a motherhood, LS, Texas motherhood and LSD. Yeah, yeah. And it's the boiling. The boiling river, which is a, a real place in Montana, um, just a thermal river that I went to. Um, 
uh, in real life. But yeah, it's, I mean, the LSD part is, it's about a character who's had a series of really positive formative experiences with LSD. And then um, sort of how she's, she's sort of in a situation with her family and she has to come back to Texas to her small town to deal with a hoarder um, situation. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the basis. So what, what are these positive experiences? I mean, so as a, like, this is something I have experience with, like just um, the character and also personally, I've had, you know, only like a dozen psychedelic experiences in my life and they were hugely positive, like worked shit out, resolved things, forgave people, felt connected to people, understood where people were coming from, like, and, and in a way that not only felt great in the moment, but that's had lasting positive effects in my life. I think I'm a better person. I think I think better thoughts. I think that I make different connections I would have never made because of those psychedelics. I believe that. LSD? Um, LSD and mushrooms. Those are the two, but yeah. not like the ayahuasca. I know. I would love to do that at some point. I don't think I can ever do any of these things again because I have children. But Yeah, um, it's hard to like, when, when am I going to put this in the calendar right (laughs) i need some recovery time so when they're 18 yeah exactly like when do i have 48 hours to do this or like dmt sounds amazing you smoke it and then that's like 15 minutes amazing right that's like the mom's psychedelic it should be (laughs) that's what they should market it yeah but Um, they're missing an opportunity here dmt Um, dealers need to go to the uh, dallas suburbs and hit up all the moms yeah um well that's good that's interesting to hear you say that because i'm uh really fascinated by that stuff too i think people who listen to my show regularly are well aware of this. Um, you know, that I think that, um, there's a lot there. Uh, it's always nice to hear people say they had positive experiences and, um, got something significant from it. I'm interested, I guess, to know if you think of those substances as drugs. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a word, right? It's, um, it's interesting to me that, I mean, I don't know. I guess I think of, I don't think of anything as a drug. I don't think of anything as a drug or what does that mean? You know, I don't really know. Our bodies produce DMT. Exactly. So it's, I think it's like tapping in. It sounds very hippie to be like, it's tapping into the overall. I don't know. It just, it feels like it's a tool. Do you feel like it's a tool or medicine? Yeah, I do. And I feel like even when things are bad, actually I've had, when I say positive experiences, I've had really bad trips, but I needed to have them. Like I needed, you know, the one thing you're like, don't think about this thing. This is the thing you're not going to think about. And then you go into it. The thing about LSD is that you can't, you know, you're like, I I can't get away from this thought. I'm going to be alone with this thought. And that's what I think when we're living our daily lives, we're trying to bat things away. And when you really go into it, then you can come through it. Um, And honestly, in some ways, it's, (laughs) I feel like psychedelics are really similar to childbirth. Like you can't. I feel like the only thing that prepared me for having an unmedicated childbirth delivery was you, you LSD. Went no meds. No meds. Oh. I feel like it was from LSD though, because it was just like you go into the pain when you're flinching from the pain. The pain is worse, but if you go into it, you can get through it. If that makes sense, it makes perfect sense. So, and I feel like it's the same thing with you know. I, even my parents' divorce was you know, I, it was I think as good as it could be, and they're very very good friends, and they live in the same neighborhood, and that's great. Um, but it was hard for me, and I think that there was a time where I was specifically thinking. I'm going to take LSD and I'm going to figure out how to forgive my parents for this. And, and I did. Okay. Cause that's interesting. Uh, I did a trip, um, you know, not too long ago. That was like a pretty high dose 
I was like following this protocol, like a research protocol. Yeah. I was like very like adult about it. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but part of it was like in, there was a big intention setting phase where like prior to ingestion, you right. like write down yeah. thoughts, fears, worries, concerns, hopes. And, you know, I read those pages after the experience and it was incredibly interesting how closely the experience itself hewed to how I had hoped it would go. So like setting an intention, it, like it's a very suggestible experience is what I'm saying. Absolutely. 100%. So if you go and you kind of like ask the, you, you say to the, whatever you want to call it, the tool, <laughs> the tool, the substance, you say, Hey, listen, I need to work on this. Yeah. And you go into it with that intention, then that's probably going to be part of what you get. Absolutely. And I think this is, so I haven't, since I've had kids, I haven't done any of this stuff. Um, that's not true. Uh, I did, there was like mushrooms in Iceland, uh, but it was like such a low dose. I barely felt, I just did like weird exercises on a, on a waterfall. I don't know. Um, it's but very Bjork. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, but I, there was a time where I took, I was trying to figure out, I had this novel that I thought was not working and I took a train ride from New York to Dallas to LA and then uh, flew home, but like a long ass train ride. And I took it with this intention of this is going to be my like trip to trap me in the moment. Like I need to sit with this idea and figure out what the fuck I'm doing. Figure out your novel. Figure out my novel or figure out. And then what I ended up happening was really quickly I figured out I didn't want to write it. <laughs> and so I threw it out and I was done with it. Like what was it that made you realize it was time to throw it out? Like what was the pivotal insight? It didn't. I was cheating on it with these stories that were actually exciting to me. And it, it was the thing I thought would sell and not the thing that I cared about. And so I realized at a certain point that I should, ju even if it, even if no one ever bought stories, I just wanted to do the thing that was making me excited. Cause why would you spend your time? And also I had little kids and I was spending time away from them to work on this project and I didn't care about it. You took this train trip while you had kids. Yeah, I took it. How long were you gone? I mean, it was only, I guess it was like two months. No, <laughs> I wish. No, it was like, it was like uh, maybe like 10 days or something. Cause it's just, you know, and then I flew home, but, um, but it was great because I was in a sleeper car, like just me. And there was a part where I was like, I want to get off. I don't want to do this anymore. But that's part of the trip too, is where you're like, I want to come down. And that's the best part. I want to come down. I don't want to be high anymore. But then you're like, okay, work through this. And, and that's, so that's when it usually like really picks exactly. up. Exactly. Like, oh shit. That's when things start to happen. That's when the work is done. Well, and so it sounds like you're somebody who is comfortable relinquishing control. Yes. And I think people, I've had people be like, uh, like even recently I've talking to somebody on the show is like, I don't want to do those drugs. I don't like to be out of control. I love to be out of control. I do too. It's the best. And I'm like, I'm always like, really? You don't want to be out of control? Like, so, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe there might be neurological or neurochemical stuff that makes it extra scary for certain people. Sure. And those people maybe shouldn't do this stuff. Right. But if you have like a basic, um, you know, stable neurochemical makeup, like it's worth, I, I think there's a very valuable humility to be found in losing that control. Absolutely. Because you go, oh, like oh, this fixed sense of who I am and this fixed sense of how things are that gets obliterated. Yeah. Or at least it did for me. Me too. And you go, Oh man. And, and you don't necessarily come away with some sort of really crystalline epiphany that's very well defined, but you just have this strong takeaway sense of there's way more than meets the eye. Yeah. 
And that is a very healthy mistrust yeah. of reality. <laughs> yes. And no one's in control anyway. It's all illusion of control. So why? I don't know. I feel like people are, if like you're saying, yeah, if people are, are afraid they have a history of mental illness or they're nervous about things and you're like, okay, right, maybe you shouldn't do that then. And I wouldn't for, it's like skydiving. Like I don't give a shit about skydiving. I don't want to. My mom loves it and she did it like a thousand times, but it's not my thing. It's not for me. So I'm not going to try it. Just Your mother, the skydiving realtor from the suburbs right? of Dallas. She is a trip. She is amazing. She's incredible. She's like the loudest, most crass, wonderful person. And she's super accepting and non-judgmental. And she'll talk to fucking everyone and she'll talk the whole time. That's great. It's great. And I grew up listening to her just yapping and it was wonderful. That's, but that's like what you want in a realtor. She's got to drive oh, her yeah. clients around. Yeah, she loves it too. She, she should do a podcast. She should. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. So you take this train trip, you toss the novel. It sounds like that was a pivotal experience that led to the finishing of the collection yeah. that you're, you know, that you're touring with right mm -hmm. now. Um, after that trip, or was it on that trip, you went, just went back to the stories or... Yeah, I went back to them with the with the intention at that point of um, kind of putting them together as a collection, and and I uh, and I just more than that, I stopped working on this other thing that was stupid, that was c taking up all my time, and so then I had more time to focus on going back and sort of brutally editing some of the things that I had written years before, um, and had enough distance to to sort of see the things that I wanted to do with those stories. And would you do another train trip? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was good. Yeah, it was really good. Do you remember when Amtrak had that yes, writer's residency? Do. Did they still do that? You know, I haven't heard, but I know there was some weird thing about how they had some sort of, um, if you, whatever you wrote on the trip somehow belonged to them and some of the writers got mad about it. Oh, and so, yeah, Just it was. Help some writers. It became too commercial for people. Your trains or, aren't sold out anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Give but I love, I love train rides. I love the feeling of it. Um, I love the people you meet on trains because there are different kinds of people who, there are a lot of people who are afraid of flying, which I love talking to people on trains about how afraid of flying they are. I don't know. You're like, you should try LSD. <laughs> Relinquish this, you know, uh, control freak part of yourself. Um, so did you, and did you get a lot done? Was it like generative? I mean, I guess it was like thought generative, it was but thought. that was it. Yeah. I read, um, I read all, all of Dana Spioto's books, which I hadn't read before. And she's I, so she's good. So good. She's so smart. I, I know. And it was just exactly what I needed. And also, you know, those are novels, but I, it's still just, I just knew I needed to do the thing that was like electric like that. Her, she's so smart. Um, I, and I hadn't had the chance to read anything before. So I started with innocence and others and then went backwards and I read all of it on the, on this train ride, which I love doing sort of, I'll do that at a residency too, where you're like, I'm going to get all of this person done on this trip just to sort of mark the trip in that way. Um, and so, and so, yeah, really quickly, I was like, I'm not going to do this novel anymore. And it was a huge sense of relief. And then I was able to just, um, when I got home, just focus on the stories. So let's talk about finishing the book and then getting to where you are now, where you've got, um, this public or this, uh, collection published by vintage. vintage. And then you've got the novel, uh, the boiling river due out from Knopf. Yeah. When? Uh, I, I think the draft is due. The draft is due in January. I say, I think I know, I know when it's due. <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Give yourself some wiggle room. <laughs> yeah. It's due in January, the draft, but I think we might be in, I don't know how long it's going to take after that point. Do you feel like it's close? Yeah. I mean, some days I feel like it's so close and then other days I'm like, mm, but I, I'm excited to work, um, 
with Tim O'Connell is going to be my editor for this one, okay. and uh, which is different. I had a uh, switch in between because um, my editor for the stories left um, to go to Penguin. She's wonderful, um, but I'm really really excited to sort of start this new part over with Tim. Was it a two book deal? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you sold the collection on the promise of the novel or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so how did that process go? Like you finished the collection. It's impossible to sell a collection, you know, or not impossible. They say. But it's very difficult. Yeah. So did you have, like, how did you get representation? Like for people listening who might be sitting there with like a drawer full of stories. I feel like I, so I was in New York and I felt very scared to leave New York because, um, so my partner is a architect, but he also does product design. And he was working out in Portland like a week a month. And we had two little kids and he, he wanted to move out there and I was scared to go, but I went. And then when we got out there, it was actually really good because I had more time and we had Portland, Oregon, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Okay. And we had more childcare. And so I was able to work more, but then I went to this 10 house summer workshop thing, which is wonderful. And they have this, you go pitch your book to, for two minutes to an agent. And I just thought, oh, I'm not ready to do that yet, which I, I would have never felt ready, to be quite honest. And so I went and I um, had seen a lot of work coming from through this one. You know, you look at the acknowledgments and you're like, oh, all of these writers I love are represented by this same person. So Meredith Kaffel-Simonoff was an agent there. And I went and talked to her for two minutes. And we talked mostly about other books that we loved. And then she said, send me your collection. And I wasn't going to do it because I felt like I wasn't ready. And then a friend was just like, go ahead and send it just to see. And I was like, what's the worst thing that can happen? And so I sent it. And then really quickly, she responded. And I was I had not queried any other agents, which I know is very rare and unusual. And um, it's really strange. But so that worked out. And then really quickly, she was able to we made like we cut a couple stories the stories I was talking about before and sort of reorganized the order a little bit. And then she found, we just sold it. And so we sold the stories and then um, there was a longer story that one of the stories that we cut that Meredith was like, I think this is actually the beginning of a novel. Like it was just sort of rambling in a way. And this was about this boiling river in Montana. And she's like, what if we, and Margot said, is there a second book? Do you have a novel? Cause I would like to do a two book. Why? Yes, I do. Actually. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I do. Yeah. See, so for that, for anyone out there listening who has one of these like unwieldy rambling short stories, you never know when it you could come know. in and, you know, help you get a two book deal. Yeah. And so I sent her the story. Well, and then I, you know, I had known I could ride that narrative voice for a long time. I really liked the narrator, but it just didn't fit with the, with the, with the short stories. And so we sent her this long rambling short story. And then I sent her a little treatment. Like, this is what I want to do. This is how I imagine the novel going. And then they, so then they came back with the two book deal. And then I had, um, I guess, you know, it's been, that was in 2017. So then I had two years to write it. And so where are you when you get the news? I always like asking this question, like, we're, like paint the picture for people. So when I sold the book, I was actually in a McDonald's parking lot, Perfect. Um, which is great. <laughs> and in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Okay. Uh, on Burnside, um, like the grossest McDonald's parking lot. Um, and I, what time of year was it? So this was like September. So my kids were at school. I had probably just done drop off. And every time I drive past McDonald's, I'm like, don't go to McDonald's. And I always do almost all the time. If I think What's about your go-to, what do you, it's so bad. I'm embarrassed. Uh, please. This it's, is, this is where you bring your shame. I barely. It's a bacon, egg and cheese biscuit, okay. which is the, it's the worst. <laughs> and I used to not, I used to get it without bacon. Cause I was like, that's better. But then I was like, just 
it's the ugliest thing just do it (laughs) and it's they serve it all day now and it's two dollars i think and so it's and and then i get their big gross coffee and then i sit in the car they call it there the big gross coffee gross coffee mcgross (laughs) and then i sit in the car at McDonald's because I make I don't want to take the carcass home. I just the evidence sit, you mean? <laughs> yes, in the car, eat it, and then I eventually will go home and then pretend it never happened. <laughs> but that's what I do. Pretty. I mean, it happened. If I think it, I feel like we're breaking news here. I don't think you've ever admitted this publicly. It's true. It's true. I I, I know also because I'm like I'm very conscious about what I eat and what my children eat, and I you know I don't take my kids to McDonald's, but I still you can't. You can't, you know, break this habit. I grew up on that. Oh, so did I. I haven't been in a long time, but I grew up eating McDonald's all the time. Right. It was like, it was like an event. We're like, we're going to go to McDonald's for dinner. It was so fun. And there's a playground. I I feel like my mom took me to 7-Eleven after school every single day to get candy. Like just candy. Like tangy taffy. Like red hots. Yeah. Were my favorite. Hot tamales. Hot tamales. Yeah. I I like baby Ruth, like candy bars. We had a a refrigerator in my garage growing up in the Midwest that was like, stocked with Mountain Dew, yeah. Coke, um, root beer. My friends would come over. We each have like a six pack of exactly. sugary drinks. Yeah. And now you would never, but also if my kids are ever in an environment where they can access food, they're just like monsters. Cause they don't like at our house, everything's sort of like, I, I should let them have like a shelf with their, their healthy snacks or whatever, but I'm just still, con- cause they just will eat all day long. I, I worry that I'm food shaming I know, my it's kids, hard. but I'm like, here's where I struggle. I'm like, look, I'm your dad. Like my job is to make sure you're, or one of my fundamental jobs is to make sure you're well. And so like the other day, my daughter came in to the kitchen, it's like nine o'clock in the morning and she's like, got her iPad. So right away, I'm like, well, screen time already. Yep. I'm fucking this up. Like yeah. she's just turning into a zombie like <laughs> right? the rest of us. And then she like grabs these goldfish, which we don't usually have, like those Pepperidge yeah. Farm. We have those all the time. Yeah. And yeah. she st- <laughs> she pours them into a little bowl. And I was like, I was like, hey, like eat something good for you. Right. She was like, what? And she got sad. She was like, well, I'm sorry. And then like, she's like, I'm not hungry. And she left the room and I was like, <sighs> uh-oh. <laughs> I was like, God. Like, you, you can't just, win though. You can't win. And I'm no. like, so if I let her eat them, then I'm like negligent and she's eating like this processed shit. And like developing bad habits. And if I say something, then I'm like the food shaming tyrant. Yeah. And like when she gets to be 15, she's going to be like cooking meth in her bathroom or whatever, you know? <laughs> Let's hope not. But no, it's true. Or my, my younger son doesn't eat anything except for tan things. Like process, everything's processed. It's either tan or orange. So he eats goldfish. He eats cereal. He doesn't eat what we eat. What about oatmeal? He barely, oatmeal's too, he has like a thing about textures. It's too chunky. It's like he wants like... I don't know. It's just give me the bland. Crackers. Does he like bread? He loves bread, uh-huh. but it's, but I don't, I was like that as a kid and I, he will eat eventually. And so I just let him, cause the older one eats everything and the younger one eats nothing. And we just, you know, you my, can't force my them. My daughter is like, she used to eat avocados. I was like baby all the time. She's yeah. now like scared of them. It's like these weird <laughs> affectations your kids take on. She's like, she doesn't want to go near them. They gross her out. The you pit know, or something. Uh, something. I and mean, they like, are kind of gross. Same thing with oranges. That. Um, She's like got this, you know, I don't know what her problem is. It's like very Billy Bob Thornton I like like in it. reverse. Yeah. <laughs> but I think like, I guess maybe the place that I'm getting to or the place that I spend most of my time is like, just let it be like, just chill out. It's going to resolve itself. Yeah. Like I grew up eating all this shit and look at me Fine. now. I'm like Mr. Like vegan, healthy yeah. green juice person. You have to get to your own. I, I don't think that, um, I don't think it matters that much. I mean, I feel like some of those decisions are 
yeah, I don't. I, I think it's probably you try to set a good example, and then you try to not freak out when they go against your example. What about screens and stuff? I mean, we we like do it. We they do. Or I I mean, there are times where I have to just make dinner, so it's like right. watch a movie. Right. I don't care. Like, like watch this stupid cartoon on your yeah. iPad and shut the fuck. Totally up. fine. <laughs> and in restaurants, I'm always like get out do you want there's this thing called community helpers which my son my little one likes and it's like one thing that's so weird there's like a nurse and it's like can you help me give my patients their injections i'm like this is a bizarre (laughs) app but so it's like the injection has like a lowercase a and then the person's arm has like an uppercase a and you like drag the injection over i'm like this is very weird well it depends what the procedure is i think an injection's okay (laughs) right we we start getting into colonoscopies it's gonna have to there's like a fire and you put out the fire it's just different community helpers but like he'll do that in a restaurant and i don't care i'm just like great we can sit and eat right because you have to eat and you have to make food and i you know i've been around babysitters and other people like family members maybe anybody who has kids tends to get it it's like people who don't have kids who might be like wow you let them watch an ipad and i'm like wait till you have two of them and you've gotten two hours of sleep and they're like screaming and yeah like what are you gonna do you can't it's impossible to bat a thousand and i grew up again i grew up watching tv I watched a shitload of TV. Oh my God, so did I. After school every day, I was a latchkey kid. Also at like seven years old, my parents would go work out and I was home by myself and they'd pay me a dollar to watch myself. And I had a jar that I put, and I remember making- Wow, that's a racket. Right? You get paid to babysit yourself. Paid to babysit yourself. (laughs) But I, and I was, I loved it and I was totally responsible. They were like, don't answer the door, don't cook anything. Those were the rules. And then otherwise I just had free reign in the house and it was wonderful. I could, my son's eight. There's no way I could leave him alone in the house. I mean, right? No. What has happened? I don't know. Because like I was reading about, there was an article floating around the internet about Germany and how like, you know, parents in Germany, like their kids, when they're like four, they're like, you know, go to town and buy milk. And I love it. They're in like, Ber- you know, they're in like Munich and it's like, go to the market, come back and you give know, them a list. Here's the list. Yeah. And these kids go do these things and they have all this autonomy. And it's like the, uh, it's like the inverse of helicopter parenting. Yeah. Where it's like, no, you need to, you know, your kids need to be confident and uh, independent and able to function and. You know, there's just like this weird American paranoia that yeah. has taken root. And, you know, I, I guess it's like not entirely um, illogical considering there's like, you know, mass shootings every week. And, right. you know, there's all this, uh, you know, you go on that app about uh, the pedophiles. What's it called? Oh, God. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, where are yeah. there pedophiles near me? And it's like, like there's yep. like 90 houses Always. in my, <laughs> like one mile radius. I'm like, holy shit. Like, yeah. we're surrounded. <laughs> Um, so it's like, you know, that you get that sort of information. It's probably hard to, uh, to justify leaving your, you know, your seven year old home alone. And then there's also things like, I don't want my kid to spend the night at someone else's house, but then I'm like, am I going to change my feelings about that? Like right now I'm just remembering when I would spend the night at friends' houses and like nothing good happened. Like, you know, I mean, it was fine, but like we got into trouble or we like, there were like boys that would sneak up. Like there's just stuff that would happen where, and also like some of my friends' parents just had different rules or they weren't around or they, they probably had guns everywhere. I don't know. Like, but no, it's and you just... know, the other thing that I freak out about is that like, I've watched too many documentaries about like, uh, people getting sexually assaulted and molested Yes, and how like the man, always the man sort of like, he seems so normal. Oh yeah. He groomed us. He's the coach or whatever. He's yeah. the nicest guy ever. Yeah. Everybody thought he was fine. He was uh, active in the church, yeah. you know, all this stuff. And so it's like that gets in my head and I'm like, wow, it seems safe. Am I missing something? Is this a blind spot? Exactly. Am I going to let my daughter, you know, spend the night somewhere where I don't know? 
Yeah. And then you're like, oh, don't ever let your kids be with anyone ever. Like that's the way, that's the safest way to go. And then you're like, well, that's also weird. And I think of all the really positive relationships I have with teachers or mentors who were super wonderful in my life, or who was like my, like the yearbook teacher who would like stay after and do yearbook club. And yeah. Yeah. And, and just, but, but now when people are really interested in my kids, I'm like, why? Like, why do you, like, why do you want to hang out with my kids? (laughs) Like, like, I babysit anytime. Like, I don't understand. Like, I just feel like it's a red flag. Well, and it's like, you know, there's all this mistrust of, of men in particular. Uh, I've been joking like on Twitter and with friends of mine lately, cause I've started wearing this obnoxious straw hat. Um, just cause we, it's so fucking yeah. hot. I'm so fucking pale and old. I'm like, you know what? I'm done. And I don't give a shit how I look anymore. No, <laughs> like I'll wear this gigantic like umbrella on my head just to like beat the desert heat. Um, but like a weird byproduct of this is that women have never been nicer to me in my oh, adult life. I love that. And I had no idea that it was going to happen. Huh. But just like on a, like walking down the street, like all of a sudden, like smiling at me, Hey, never happened before. Women never said hello to me. It's like, it takes, there's no threat. No, my friend, Melissa, uh, I had lunch with my friend, Melissa Broder. She's an author oh, yeah, yeah. and she's so funny. She's like, nobody's raping in that hat. She's <laughs> <That's> like, <true. laughs> and I was like, I guess so. It's like the threat level is down. And I think also, like, they feel sorry for me. They're like, oh, this poor middle-aged man with his straw hat on. I but, love it, though. That's great. But it's interesting, because then now you shouldn't say that, because then all of the, like, pedo rapists are going right. to be like, get that hat. Yeah. You've got to get that hat. <laughs> and you can't, then the hat's going to be ruined. I'll have to find something new and, and uh, you know, obnoxious to wear. But um, it makes me a little sad, you know? And it's like, especially if you're um, a decent person who happens to be male, I think there is a lot of times that feeling of, like, don't be scared of me. I'm oh, okay. Yeah, like, you know, course. you just like, it's like, uh, there's like a weird psychic burden to that, not to elevate that psychic burden above no, but, other psychic burdens, but just to say, you know, it's but like, I can imagine it's weird to navigate. You don't want people to mistrust you. And yet it's sort of like built in at this point. Yeah. Well, cause it's rightfully so, but then you're like, yeah, I totally understand. And I have had such positive experiences with men in my life, all positive, like very positive experiences, which is totally unusual. Great dad, great siblings, great stepdad, like all of that great relationships and but i feel like it's very rare super rare yeah yeah no like and it, it can make you um i made me like a blind until like kind of recently to the scope of um the problem people are talking about it so much more now and and yeah you realize that all your friends that you assumed had like great childhoods or whatever and they're like it just starts to come out and you're like i can't believe that this was going on and that's the thing too spending the night at friends houses and then finding out about the horrible stuff that was happening in those houses and then luckily it didn't happen to me but it's just crazy to think of i just want to keep my kids obviously keep them safe and so you're but walking that line of letting them experience the world and meet people and have their own interests that are outside of me but then to keep them safe. Where do you live now? So I live in the Northwest part of Portland, Oregon. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. You didn't yeah. go back to Texas. No, I haven't been back since 2005. You're like James Joyce in exile. You exactly. write about Texas, but you live in Portland. I do. And I cannot shut up about it. I thought with this novel, like I won't write about Texas anymore, but then she goes to Texas to deal with her family. So I feel like it's just my, it's so much a part of my life and my core personality was formed there and all my family is still there. So, and it's, it's like there. this big, rich tableau. There's so much there's it so is. many places to explore and so many characters down there. Yeah. I always feel like Texas, like, what do I think about when I, like, there's just like that attitude people like, 
you know, I grew up in Wisconsin. People are like, yeah, they like Wisconsin. But like people who are from Texas are like, I'm from fucking Texas. It's Texas pride. <laughs> yeah. Don't mess with Texas. Yeah. yeah right. It's a real thing. It's almost like it's the same level of the football and the religion. It's you can't you can't talk shit about Texas. You can't. And that's why, you know, I I mean, I don't care, but I I worry a little bit about I don't I want to be grateful for it because it's such a huge part of my writing life. Um, but I also when I lived there, wanted to move <laughs> like I wanted to get out of there. Well, that tribal I get nervous around tribal mentality of any kind yeah because it's unthinking you know it feels like people are doing a shorthand instead of coming to their own conclusions so it's right. scary but then there's like i feel like uh there's something sort of like masculine and cool about texas dudes yeah like i think girls like texas guys they're like wow this guy, he's never, like an actual guy i did it when i was there like i hated it i rebelled against it so much but then actually just on the in the airport and it was a, here coming here there was a guy with like a cowboy hat with like the boots and the stuff and i was like i don't know i kind of like it <laughs> it's like, kind of working well, for well you me spend now. enough time like around like these twee guys in brooklyn and portland it's you're like, true i think i might want to go uh, hang out with what's his name riggins from uh <laughs> oh yeah from, Tim riggins, from, yeah <laughs> Of course. Um, so what, I guess the novel is basically going to preoccupy your fall. Yeah. You don't have anything. You're going to, you're going to take a train trip to like deal with like the finishing of the manuscript. Or I you... feel like I'm on, since I'm doing this tour, you know, I have to, I'm trying to be home for my kids a lot. So I feel like I've kind of exceeded my travel for a while. Yeah, so yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll be doing East coast stuff, um, in like a week and I'll be gone for two weeks and there's still little enough that that's, I mean, that's hard. So I'll be home, um, like late September and then I'll just stay home for a while probably and work and, and work. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, I want to ask, are you on social media? I am. Yeah. How do you, do you navigate that pretty easily? Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I try not to spend a lot of time on it, but I feel like the, for me, the best thing to do is to post something and then to like, get the fuck out. Like, I don't want to sit there and monitor it. So sometimes the best thing for me is to post something early in the day and then be like, I don't want to see what's happening with it. <laughs> so that then at night you can go be like, Oh, what happened with that thing? But is it like an, are you opinionated on Twitter or on uh, social? I mean, I try to be, I try not to be super opinionated. I mean, I don't know. I'm just sort of like, it'll be just like observations or it'll be like just work stuff, like book stuff mostly, or like championing other people's work and like showing like this person's book cover just came out and it's amazing. So there's like being a part of the lit scene in that way. Yeah. And then a lot of like pictures of my kids, you yeah. know, normal shit. Yeah. Normal stuff. So normal nothing stuff. too, nothing too explosive. No, I don't know. I mean, how do you feel when you do some of the more, like you were just talking about posting about religion? Like, I don't like that feeling of regretting or, or anxiety that comes with posting something that might be on the line. And so usually I say, look, Let's think about it for an hour. And if you still want to post it in an hour, then you can do it. And almost never. Yeah. And then I to. also feel like once I've deleted it, I'm like, I'm such a pussy. Yeah, Just exactly. Keep it up. You like, got to go all in. You but... got to go all in. And then like, but at the same time, it's like, it's not worth it to me. I don't care enough. I'm only on Twitter. I don't have any other social media, but I'm just like, I don't care enough about it Yeah. to want to have it be this headache in my life. And I also genuinely don't want to hurt people. Right. Uh, including people with whom I might have like really, really vastly different viewpoints sure. there, you know, like, yeah. um, but if it's like, you know, something about Trump and like these babies getting ripped out of their mother's oh arms, like I'm happy to be vociferous there, but like, um, you know, something as personal as, uh, a faith tradition, like even if like these dudes in Washington are creepy, you don't want to implicate, like you say, like you're cousins or family members or people in general on Twitter who might just be like, I love the Sermon on the Mount. Exactly. You know? like, exactly. Uh, Cause then it's like, Hey, then you're, you're being unnecessarily divisive. And I think I'm also, um, maybe circling back to psychedelics. 
Um, you know, I'm also sort of pretty firmly entrenched in, or want to be firmly entrenched in that sense of humility. Like as much as I might feel a strong, strong sense of belief, there's always this, like, what the fuck do you know? Yeah. You're so small. Like, like give, um, like check yourself. Exactly. Yeah. And in a way, I feel like sometimes social media can feel like a collective in a really great way where, I mean, sometimes, sometimes it's like a cesspool, but sometimes it feels like, oh, we're like, we're finding our people or we're supporting each other. Or, you know, if you're talking about book stuff when people aren't reading, like, but then there's this really active, enthusiastic group of people who are excited about work and who are posting about other things. And it's, it's, it makes you feel really excited to be a part of it. Well, and yeah. So when, when, when the, when the mob mentality on social is uh, like fueled by positive energy. Yeah. Wonderful. Right. I think like, I, this is a conversation I've had, like mostly off the record. People don't like to talk on the record about this because I think they're scared. Right. I think a lot of people are uncertain of how to behave and think and speak and express themselves on social for fear of reprisal. If they say one wrong thing, especially around humor. Yeah. Um, you know, saying something subversive or witty or eye rolly or just trying to crack a joke. You're like, well, what, what if this, or, or speaking politically, you know, in that kind of context, like it is a minefield. Yeah. And I've tried to, cause I feel some of that too. Um, I think anybody who's got like a comedic bent, especially feels like, it's, Dude, tricky. it's a very difficult environment to be a jokey person in Yeah, because you never know like one thing. And the, if w the wrong person gets offended with enough influence on social, like it, it takes a second, it can fuck your life yep. up. And I don't think that's healthy. Um, at the same time, <laughs> I think that a lot of the correctives and a lot of like what we've been seeing where people are talking more about uh, like, for example, abuse right. or the, the bad deeds of men or the power imbalance between genders or any number of injustices. Like, I feel like there's been a lot of, um, of a correction around that stuff. That's very much needed to say the least. Yeah. But I think in addition to that, there is maybe some overcorrection happening in certain ways. And I think it's got to sort itself out. Like we as a collective, like not you and me, sure. I mean, I think we do too, but I yeah. think like in general, like our society needs to figure out like, how are we going to handle this stuff? And like. Um, like one of the things I struggle with, it's like, wow, you really need to like listen more to people who are saying they've been abused and you need to believe people right. and like pay real careful attention to what they're saying. At the same time, I'm like, I need some due process here. Like, I don't know. I'm not comfortable with somebody just being like condemned after like one. It's like, it, it, it gets tricky for me. I think the biggest thing is how fast time moves on social. So it's like, you know, um, like the, I, we joke about it. My friends and I joke about like being canceled or you say the wrong thing and you're canceled and that's it. And you're done. This is what I and mean it's though. Scary. This is what I mean though. People off the record, like they're never joking about being canceled on Twitter. Right. Or occasionally they will. But right. like, I think so many people offline are like, Oh, you're canceled. Oh, right. we're all canceled. I don't think. And this is something I had Brett Easton Ellis on the show and had many disagreements with him sure. about Trump. I can imagine. But one of the ways in which I agree very much with him is that I don't think anybody really loves cancel culture. I think a lot, I think everybody, like regardless of political persuasion sure. is what I mean. Cause it's like, this is a, this is a very dicey place for all of us to be. Um, and you know, I think at the same time, you know, you, you have to, um, I think it is, wise to change with the times and to 
modify um, views and the ways in which we think and talk about certain things in accordance with these new learnings and these new voices speaking up. Um, I'm not, I'm not arguing for like a, let's go back to the way it was. I'm not arguing for like a fixed stance. Um, I think things are always fluid and that's as it should be. But, um, I think we have to, like, I don't know what the answer is, but we have to come to a a place where there is more of an equilibrium and less of this like hothouse like uh, dangerous. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I do think so many people are really, really pissed off at being, at not being heard for so long. And so what happens is you do have people who are like, and fuck this guy and this guy and this guy. And I understand that because right. they have been sitting there seething for this whole time. And they're like, finally, I can talk about this. And I so can I vent get my it. anger. Yeah. And right. so I understand it. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's the same thing or just, sort of the attention to language has changed in a way. I just saw something where someone was like, you know, Epstein committed suicide and someone was like, don't say committed suicide. We don't say that anymore because committed suicide implies like committing a crime and you should say he died of suicide. I saw that same tweet. I saw that same tweet and I was like, oh, it's interesting because I hadn't, I mean, I'm like, oh, okay. Or, or, you know, like my friend was saying, can, do you say deaf or do you say hard of hearing or like, what's the language? And like, he had to look it up to make sure he was saying it in the right way because he was using it in a book or something. And it's, I think that that sort of attention to language is really great. Um, but it's also important to remember that it's always changing and that you, you know, you're sort of writing it as you're going along. And, and it can also, and, you know, I think we need to be forgiving of people who are acting more or less in good faith. Yeah. Um, like I have a disabled child. I have dear friends of mine and family members who talk out of turn, um, around that kind of stuff. Like they'll use the word retarded, oh God. um, in front of me. And you know what? I don't say anything. It's hard. Yeah. And I wince a little bit internally, but I also know that I don't speak perfectly. Right. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like you're giving I, like, people the benefit of the doubt that they are not doing it maliciously. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I think people will come around. I don't know if I necessarily need to be the one to lecture every single time there's an infraction. Right. And that I feel like maybe, especially on social media, there's that sense of like, man, you better not fuck up at all. Right. As if anybody out there hasn't fucked up a million times, right. you know? And so it's just this sense. And I, I guess maybe if we're going to, you know, loosely circle back to your collection, some of the empathy that you're trying to foster for imperfect or as you, you put it, despicable people. It seems a little strong to me. Some of them are despicable. Like, I mean, there's one guy who's like beating his girlfriend. So you're like, that okay. guy's despicable. Okay, he's despicable. Some of them are, some of them I would say just more like, yeah, imperfect, flawed, fringy, fringe characters. But you no know. matter what human. Yeah. And if you're in a very dark, wrong headed place, the hard reality is that you're still a human being, you know, woefully misguided mm-hmm. acting, uh, terribly, but like, you know, it, I don't know. I certainly don't always handle those kinds of people. Well, like it's very easily easy for me to, especially on social, you know, where you're responding to things in real time and right. getting this like, you know, fire hose of news. Um, but I think my deeper self, like my more, um, you know, LSD slash spiritual self, yeah. uh, I would say, Oh God, you know, this person's clearly suffering terribly. Um, you know, or they're acting and speaking out of anger or they were abused and they're perpetuating a cycle of abuse. And you have that understanding. You might hopefully have a little bit of compassion for them. You don't excuse the act, 
Like, isn't that where we should be? Instead yeah. of just like, I'm going to condemn you, motherfucker. You're canceled. Like, exactly. Well, it's the same thing. It's like you, you know, I'm living in a town where I don't want to be. So then I can move away, but then I can still try to communicate with the people from that. You know what I mean? Like, I still don't want to live there. I'm not going to move back and be like, now I can come back. I still don't we want can to retire in Lubbock. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> and it's the same thing on social media. There's plenty of family members even where I go to see sometimes if they're still being assholes, and they always are. <laughs> like I, I, I haven't unfriended them because they're family. But I have them hidden because I don't want to see their shit. But then you go back to be like, are they still? And you're like, yep, yep. still are. <laughs> but it's- Social media, it's where people go <laughs> to be complete assholes. But I still feel like I understand some of it. Or I, I see the fear behind it. I see that there's a lot of anxiety and fear about losing their station. Or there's you know anxiety about this whatever. I and mean, we could go into so many different ways. But it's mainly fear-based. I think that it's interesting. I think you and I have maybe a similar foundation in a lot of ways in our lives and like maybe a similar bearing psychologically. And it makes some logical sense to me that we would both be fascinated with psychedelics because they, um, they create whether you like it or not vulnerability Yeah, and it's guaranteed. Yep. You take enough, oh, yeah. that mask is going to fall. Mm-hmm. Those illusions are going to be stripped away and you're going to go for a ride. And that appeals to me. It's so beautiful. And I think there's something in my secret heart, you know, where I'm like, you ever had that, like that, like sort of like college dorm room thought where you're like, I just wish we could dose these motherfucking politicians yes. <laughs> yes, or dose these like people, you know, in this, uh, church in the South who think they are so fucking right about right. these big questions. And it's like, that gets exhausting, that fixedness and that really strong, like ideological dogmatic bent. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm a big fan of disassembling that stuff because I don't ultimately think it's healthy for people. It's not. They're white knuckling it though. They're trying so hard, but that's the thing. Some people need more answers or they need more. They need to feel like they have answers. Nobody has fucking answers. Like that's such an illusion, but I do. I think we should dose people. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a wonderful place to close personally. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. Uh, you have to get to the airport, I think. I do, yeah. Well, it's been great to meet you. Thank you so much. Con- this has been awesome. Yeah, congrats on the story collection. Um, congrats on the novel. I will be eagerly awaiting that. Thank Just you. Just like a boiling river and LSD, I'm on board. Thank you so much. Um, so good luck and safe travels. Thank you. That is uh, Kimberly King Parsons. Her story collection is called Blacklight, and it is out there from Vintage. Get your copy right now. Read it. Blacklight by Kimberly King Parsons. You can find her on the web at KimberlyKingParsons.com. Her Twitter handle is at KKingParsons. Once again, the story collection is called Blacklight. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, The email address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Did I say that right? Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget this podcast has its own app, the Other People app. It's a quality app. What's uh what's going on next week on the program? 
Next week on the program... I'm talking to, uh... A poet. 